Welcome to The Pick List, the podcast for curious food industry minds. Every week, we bring you our pick of articles from the world of food and grocery retail and explore what they tell us about how our food industry is changing in these extraordinary times. We chat about the major news from nationals and big trade titles, but we also love unearthing gems from niche publications and sharing brilliant, quirky food stories that change the way we think about the food we eat and produce. I'm Julia Glotz. And I'm Laura Ryan. It's great to have you with us. Let's start the show. Hi, Laura. How are you? Yeah, good, Julia. Have you had a good week? Yes, a very busy week indeed. Lots of writing. Um, I've got multiple reports that I'm producing at the moment, so um, I'm cranking out a lot of words, but uh, it's it's all good fun and really interesting topics as well. But uh, yeah, lots to do. How about you? Yeah, good week. Thank you. There'll be smoke coming off that keyboard, I bet. Um, I've been doing quite a lot of business planning for Laven Park, my uh, consultancy business, which is really exciting. So there'll be more on that coming soon. Fantastic. And we've got a really interesting guest joining us uh, this week as well. We're joined by Jed Futter. Jed's got a really interesting background in uh, food and the grocery industry. Um, Most notably, he was at Asda um, as a buyer for quite a long time. So he's got a really broad experience of of food and grocery. He now uh, is freelance, runs his own business, um, really successful training and consultancy business, uh, teaching suppliers how to get the most out of their relationships with retailers so he's certainly got a few tips and tricks and and really interesting insights to share with us a fantastic guest should we start the show jed welcome to the show thank you so much for joining us it's a pleasure to be here why don't you briefly introduce yourself and tell our listeners how you're connected to food and grocery yeah absolutely well i've actually been working in food probably since I was about 17, but actually it was only in grocery. I've been working in retail for over 20, well, 20, 23 plus, plus years. So most of my time actually was at Asda. So when I was at Asda, I did a couple of years in supply chain, but most of the time actually was a buyer. So I was a senior buyer. I worked in beer. Uh, and back in the day before it was craft beer, it was a premium bottled ale. So that's what one of the things that I bought. Then I moved into grocery uh, and I looked after like olive oils and desserts and baking things like that when there was a home baked boom back then um then to frozen food um so I worked in frozen food and about six years ago i left asda and for the past six years i've been working for myself and now i work with suppliers uh, to help suppliers work better with the retailers because it's a challenging market out there and anything that i can do to help them work better is uh, is that so actually but i've always had an interest in food and particularly about uh, people's relationship with food Excellent. And I think that sort of broad range of experience that you've had at sort of various bits of the supply chain, all sorts of different categories, I think tease you up quite nicely for for our show as well. We've got quite a broad selection of articles to discuss this week as well. Why don't you tell us about the first article you picked for us? Yes. So the first one that that I've got is actually it's about vertical farm. And it piqued my interest because actually Farming is something that, I mean, I've had an, an interest in um, back to my childhood. And actually, when you see how farming has changed and actually how it is changing and actually the whole way of, of vertical farming. And actually, one of the things that what they talked about actually is how you can actually have farms actually in urban areas, particularly actually for me, one of the things to talk about is in supermarkets. So how can you actually have 
vertical farming and actually farming integrated within supermarkets. I think it's something that they've done in the Netherlands already. And actually to do something like that in the UK, uh, I think would be a fascinating way to actually get fresh produce into the, and, re and really fresh produce into, into the stores. Plenty of challenges around it, but I think it's, it's really it's a different way of using land um, and space that's available. Absolutely. And I think the, um, the, the article that, that you picked, which was from FoodBev Media, if, if I remember correctly, I think it was quite interesting. They clearly have sort of hooked this around some pretty chunky investment that one of the um, sort of vertical farm operators, one of the leaders in that space in farm, has just managed to secure $170 million in funding. Um, it, I think it sort of speaks to the potential that clearly exists um, in, in that sector now that we're seeing that level of, of investment. Acado, of course, they've also made some, some pretty uh, sizable investments in, in some vertical farm operators. So, yeah, it's interesting to see how exactly that's going to be implemented in store. I think M&S have started kind of sniffing around that, that area already, haven't they? Um, yeah. I mean, and it just adds a bit of theatre, doesn't it? It does. I mean, if you think about particularly with the, the larger format stores, one thing that they've got actually is space. So they're all talking about, so well, how do we use this space? And actually, well, there's all the different options that they can what, think about how a lot of them have used their space that might be for a dry cleaner or a locksmith. Well, actually, well, why not use it for food? So, and actually, then you, you talk about food miles, you're not going to get any closer than that, are you? Um, so actually, but obviously, like all of these things, it comes with challenges. Um, so who's going to run, how are you going to run it in store? Because the one thing that, we see in stores at the moment actually is colleagues at time is challenging so who's going to run it and actually how how would that work how would the space work um so there's a huge a lot of challenges to overcome but i think it's a really interesting way of of, of, of using space differently in in it, all sorts of formats and actually getting fresh food into city centers because i think that's that's something that actually that we've got to try and look at what we can do with space particularly with city centers um, seeing what's happening at the moment, city centres are struggling. So actually, well, what can we do with the space to actually to, to, to revitalise them? There? Anything that, op that offers um, healthy produce, I think actually has got to be a good thing. Julian, what's your first pick this week? So my first pick this week is from The Times. Um, it's an article by Ashley Armstrong called Asda Bidder Has an Eye on Reaching for the Sky. Um, it also happens to be a perfect example of how quickly the news cycle can move at the moment uh, because it's about some of the plans that Lone Star, the private equity group that was in the running to my Asda, had for some of Asda's property portfolio. I say was, of course, because since that article was published on Monday, Lone Star has in fact pulled out of the bidding process. Anyway... This article still raises a really interesting topic that I think is worth discussing regardless of what's happening with that particular sales process. Namely, and this is something that Jed's already touched on, you know, how do you get maximum value out of a store estate at a time when retail space is under pressure? And one particular strategy is to look at air rights which is essentially looking at the space above supermarkets, which the retailers would have the right to develop, and then using that space to build homes and offices, typically. 
It's an approach that Tesco is already taking at several sites in London. Um, and the article says two years ago, Tesco said they thought they could generate £400 million from their air rides. Uh, Sainsbury's has also made a, a pretty tidy profit from redeveloping a store in Vauxhall in South London along similar lines. Now, obviously, we'll have to wait and see if uh, Asda's ultimate new owner will want to do anything with their air rights. But it certainly raises, I think, a really interesting question about what will happen to those store estates and how retailers are going to uh, get the most value out of them, especially uh, in, in the wake of COVID. Um, Jed, I mean, as a former uh, retailer and someone who's looked at that sector for a really, really long time, how do you think COVID is going to change the way supermarkets will look at their um, sort of real estate portfolio? Would you expect more of them to look at things like air rights, for example? I think all of them are looking at absolutely everything that they possibly can. And air rights is just one of those things that, that's, that's on their list. So how they use the stores, if you think, and we did touch, we touched on the last article, actually, the space in stores. The model, particularly in the UK for stores, has been big box stores out of town. Um, so that's what a lot of them are built around. The interesting part of this is actually, well, which stores can you use the airspace for? Where are they located? Um, and I think that will also very much depend on the retailer themselves, because that where they're located is, is quite different across each different retailer. So I think that's that'll be a, that's going to be a really interesting thing. One and how and how they actually do that, and if they can do it, um, I certainly think that actually that they've got to think about how they use the space in their stores better, um, because there is all that we see and we have seen over the years actually is that massively extended ranges in the biggest stores, and actually we've seen actually that customers now are used to shopping places where they don't have that full range. They're not looking for that in the way that they're used to. So using the space, and I think one of the things that we know in this country that we need, we need more housing. So that is, that is a need. So how can you actually put housing into places where actually there is, there is space? Um, so if, if I think if retailers can do it and can do it well, then actually what that will do is actually, actually it can make the stores themselves part of the community. And I think that's where, and if a retailer looks upon it in, in that way, and think about you know, how do we actually make our stores the centre of a community rather than just looking at it, well, this is what we can do to actually to raise more money. I think that then becomes a very different proposition and that then becomes something that a retailer can stand behind and actually then this is, that gives customers a reason to be there. Because if your store is the heart of a community, then I think that actually then, uh, that will resonate with what people are looking for nowadays. And I think that's what we've seen with COVID people looking far more locally for what they want. Um, and I think that's, I think that will be a really interesting way of, of how a retailer can position it with, with, the, with the local communities. It's really interesting to listen to your uh, perspective on that. And you're right. And I think that could really drive loyalty to have them at the heart of the community. Uh, and it was a, a good article. And I was interested at the bottom of the article that mentioned about um, B&Q 
uh, partnering with some concessions in Asda stores, which was something I wasn't aware of. And it made me think, I guess, of the success that JS have had with the Argos tie-in. And as we've already alluded to, all that space in store, uh, getting on board with others, Kingfisher Group and, and the like, for areas that they're not already trading in to make supermarkets more and more the one-stop shop to stop people having to travel for the other items, hardware items in this respect on these forced trial stores is really fascinating. And as you say, Jed, they're looking at everything and willing to try anything. And I guess now more than ever is an opportunity when I guess you're sitting in one of these HQ or probably not sitting on Zoom on a yeah. retail call saying, actually, I've had this idea for a while. Should we pilot it? That I guess the answers are a lot more likely to be, yes, let's give it a go now than it's ever been. Yeah. One of the other interesting parts that I saw in there actually was that um, there was the, the link with the EG group, Euro Garages group, um, and actually Asda talked about, well, the, thing that the article talks about trialing with convenience. I think the uh, the days for trialing with convenience are well and truly gone. I think we know that there's only to trial it. That's what customers want. So actually, uh, it's, it's uh, well, how are you going to partner and get in there and do it? Um, yeah. So you don't need a trial to see if customers want convenience. We know that they want convenience, so that's they want it now. The answer is yes. Yeah. <laughs> Laura, what's uh, your first pick this week? Uh, my first pick this week's from the grocer, and it's John Lewis and Waitrose to roll out joint loyalty scheme. Um, and as you know, I'm a bit of a fan of John Lewis and Waitrose. I always like watching what they're up to and uh, we'll put it in the show notes. There was a really interesting article uh, in the Sunday Times a couple of weeks ago, an in-depth interview with Sharon White and her ambitions for, for them um, as a group. But in terms of this specifically and what the grocer are talking about, this is um, a rollout of a combined uh, customer loyalties card scheme across Waitrose and John Lewis brands as part of a wider push to bring uh, together the two businesses. And I thought, oh, that sounds really interesting. But read further into the article. This is actually something that they piloted uh, back in September 2018. So two years ago, they piloted this um, with 60,000 cardholders across the My John Lewis and My John, um, My Waitrose and My John Lewis loyalty cards. Um and it's quite a small trial in respect of this is 7 million My Waitrose cardholders and 2.6 million uh, My John Lewis members. And of that trial, half of the folks uh, had used it within the first uh, couple of months in terms of that combined card. But interestingly, it feels like John Lewis have sat on that information uh, and, and waited quite a, some time to actually make the move to, to, to amalgamate the two. They haven't actually got a launch date for when the rollout's going to happen and um, they're saying it's going to hopefully come soon but they're now seeing that the loyalty across the several formats and the brands and joining those up is really important and I guess why wouldn't it be? There's so much press at the moment in terms of the move to johnlewis.com and the the breakaway from Ocado, what that's meaning for them, the huge amount of real estate that they've got and what they're going to do with that. And it's been interesting to just talk about what, what, what Asda are up to and there's been a lot of press about you know, the Oxford Street store in particular and maybe um, uh, leasing quite a lot of that and turning the top floor in, into a into a restaurant potentially. But I guess the, the, the big thing in terms of, of pressing and included in this article is the fact that, that Sharon White, the chairman's had to say that the group will not pay its staff an annual bonus next March, uh, which is the first time since 1953. So 
as a group, um, they're, they're up 1.1%, uh, and that's driven all by Latros. Um, John Lewis itself was down 9.7% as, as, as an individual um, estate. What are your thoughts, Jed, when you're looking at, at Waitrose uh, and John Lewis? It's such a huge um business across the two groups and where and so many decisions have to be made what what are your thoughts well john lewis is it's one of these businesses that's it's been part of my life since childhood so i can remember going to the john lewis in nottingham when i was a kid with my parents going out there for sort of and doing, doing shopping over there and remember the never knowingly undersold all these different things and actually so it was always it always stood for quality, for reliability, and also for knowledge. So the, the, the colleagues and the staff that work there, always you think if you, get, if you went to those stores, then you knew you'd speak, speak to someone who knew what they were talking about. And that's what it, that's what it seems to have, it's, it's not moved with the times then, actually it's lost what it, what it had. Um, and actually so it, is, it has got a huge challenge ahead, I think John Lewis and Waitrose had. And I think how they combine, how they combine. I mean, if they just try and combine, then actually all they're doing is holding on to on an older customer base. And actually, then it, you're right about seven seven million customers or card holders for my Waitrose, two point six month jump my journey. Me, I would imagine that there's not a there's a huge amount of overlap between them. There's not really much new in there. How are they going to get new customers in there? And actually, well. <laughs> It might be the cynic in me, but when I heard him, heard him say, well, hopefully come soon, actually, well, any retailer that actually that uses the phrase, hopefully, basically, has got to be thinking a bit, bit, bit more than that. And actually, but what are the benefits? Yeah. So if you're going to have a loyalty scheme, there's got to be really clear benefits. And actually, if you just think about one thing, I mean, Little, they've launched their own loyalty scheme lately, and the benefits are absolutely clear. So you've got to be really clear. And I think one of the things that John Lewis and Waitrose are still yet to find is it's, it's that identity. And any retailer needs to have a really clear identity. The retailers that have got clear identities are the ones that actually will win. Yeah. Because the customers know what you're going to get. And they know why, why are they going to go there. And actually, you've got to give the customers a reason to go there. And actually, it's got to be more than just a, a loyalty card. And do you think, and you're totally right about making sure it's clear to the customer what the benefits of that card is, and is it the flip side as well about making sure them as a partnership are using that big data, and I know that gets banded around so much, but actually targeting that effectively to understand who their customers are, what they want, and to deliver to them, and I guess the optimist within me hopes that that John Lewis could invest effectively to be able to do that because they come from a place, as you say, with quality and all that heritage and then to, to, to be able to use that to, to their advantage. I would also say, I mean, I think I'm sort of reasonably optimistic on that as well. I think they've definitely got some challenges on, on their hands. And I think looking at getting younger shoppers engaged with, with both brands, I think is a is, is, is obviously a really important focus. On the other hand, I think there is a lot of goodwill still attached to those brands. You know, Jed, the way you talked about sort of early memories being connected um, to, to, to a brand like John Lewis in particular. So it feels like there is 
a, a reservoir of, of goodwill that um, that should hold them in good stead. Um, I would also say, you know, I think actually on the e-commerce side, I know that's not been entirely um, with, without its challenges, but when I look at some other big high street brands, um, I think they've actually done a pretty good job of delivering reasonably well and I think the kind of click and collect option that they've had for a while within Waitrose stores that felt like a really obvious and natural and well-functioning tie-up as well so I think there are opportunities for them to kind of find those synergies I mean I guess there's always a kind of internal sort of challenge where you think about you know how much integration do you want and do you have two businesses that kind of want to have their own leadership teams and their own strategies as well so that's obviously something that um that they will they they will be working through but um i think despite those challenges it, they they strike me as two businesses that should have the raw ingredients and the kind of uh, goodwill to um to to do something um that that kind of makes sense in in combination but i think your point about just being super clear about that proposition. I think the comparison to, to Lidl Plus, um, I think it's is well made. You just know what you're getting, you know, you get a fiver off if you spend that much. Great. Yeah. I know exactly what I'm getting here in, in terms of benefits. The, the, the other thing that the John Lewis partnership have got is that they are partners. All the people that work for John Lewis and Waitrose are part of the business. So they have got a reason to make it work because they're partners in that. that can, if they use properly, that's gotta be a really powerful motivation for everybody in there. Um, so that I think that is how you unlock that. And actually you're, you're right, there, there is a lot of, um, well say in, in maybe in certain parts of, of, of the society and sector and population, there are a lot of um, positive feelings towards John Lewis and the Waitrose. And I think if they work with that kind, that market, then I think they'll be successful. If they try and go completely mass market, and then they are trying to see, well, okay, we're going to we're going to be the same price as Tesco, and Tesco are going to be the same price as Aldi, then they they lose their identity. And actually, well, say this is who we are. This is what the food. This is there are foods here that you cannot get anywhere else. And in John Lewis, there are products here come to us, talk to us, and actually if they get their e-commerce right, and then the whole click and collect with the Waitrose, then I think that that is, it's a really powerful combination that they've got. But they, yeah, they've they got to get it right. Absolutely. Jed, what's your second article for us? Second article for me was one that was in uh, the Observer Food Monthly. And actually it's something that, is, it's, that I'm, let's say I'm, I'm, I'm passionate about, and passionate about food, passionate about quality food. And actually, most thing, most important thing actually is about kids and actually making sure that kids are eating proper food and particularly in schools um i still remember back to my school dinner my school dinners and actually that's back in the day those days when school dinners were made in schools and you think over what's happened i mean obviously i left school quite a few years ago but you've seen how the industry's changed and how schools are having they're having to cut costs and actually we saw it already with Jamie Oliver in the school dinners. So that was that's so that is what that was a kind of precursor to the article of what's happened. And actually, it's it's a, uh, an ex chef who started working with the school. The school. So it's London based, and actually is going in and using chefs within schools to prepare the ingredients. And actually, what they looked at is actually well, how much does a school meal cost, and then how much would it cost with them? And actually, 
the costs initially are slightly higher, but actually that's about the wages. But actually what the chefs can do is because they've got relationships with their produce and their food suppliers, then they can actually source food much cheaper. So actually over the long term, what you are getting actually is actually you're getting a much better quality of food. And actually we know that if kids are having better quality meals, then they will learn better. And what they get is from an early age is they get a really good positive relationship with food and they understand what food is, where it comes from. Um, so for me, that's one of the, that's why it stood out to me is because actually that's, that's one of the things that we've got to get right in the future. We've got to get children's relationship with food much better and more understanding with it than it is at the moment. Totally. I thought it was a, a really interesting um, read and just an inspirational initiative. And I really liked, and you alluded to that point, um, I really liked the way they, they looked at costs because, as you say, yes, there is initially an increase and some of the ingredients might be more expensive. But I think the article made quite clear that, you know, if you are getting a trained chef into your school to cook those dinners, you're also getting someone who's actually got brilliant expertise at making the most out of those ingredients. Yeah. So, you know, you, you actually end up in, in some cases um, having lower costs. I think they gave some examples where the sort of average cost of a meal came down from a pound to 80p. Um, they looked at kind of, you know, the cost of buying in bread, for instance, versus baking it within yeah. the school. So I think it's um, it's it sort of it challenges, I think, quite it's quite a few sort of misconceptions where you perhaps your initial reaction would be, well, this is all fair and well, but it sounds terribly expensive. But actually, there are ways of, um, you know, really driving up food quality and doing that in a way that that can actually save um, save costs as well, let alone saving costs for the health system, you know, yeah. later down the line. Um, I loved some of the um, particularly harsh comments from the kids as well. I mean, they are a tough audience to please. I think the 18-hour braised lamb dish didn't go down quite so well as the uh, the chefs had hoped. But um, no. brilliant initiative and a really just lovely piece as well. I like the way in there as well. It talked about the less waste. I thought that was really not only as you, you say about the, the cost there, but the fact that because they're used to dealing with that product and working in a commercial kitchen, that they actually waste less food, less food as well. But you're totally right, Jen. And I'm guessing thinking back to your earlier comments about how supermarkets can be part of the community. Um, you know, and I know that they all try, but how can we all work together to try and get kids connected with food? And I know a lot of that happens in the home and seeing uh, parents cook and all that stuff. And it's going to be hugely important to make sure we somehow get kids connected with food because the purchases of the future otherwise will will just end up, um, I guess, more and more processed products and they won't know how to cook it and all the rest of it. Yeah, and if you think about the amount of initiatives that are taking the round exist with food at the moment, with food waste and with with re, uh, supermarkets working with fair share and all these different things, and actually, well, just this what, the way that actually, well, maybe supermarkets can work with some of the chefs. So, yeah. what is stopping them actually from working with the chefs and actually the food going to schools? Because the chefs know what to do with this food that comes in; they're going to be cooking it the next day, so it's not going to be hanging around. So there are, it's just, if for me, it's about thinking differently. And actually that's yeah. why when I look at all these articles, be it either in the in 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 supermarket or how you use food in the, in the schools, it's thinking differently. And actually if we start to think differently, but 
what that requires is it requires us to to put a little bit more effort up front and i think that's yeah. the big change actually is if you put the effort in up front then the returns longer term are going to be better for everybody um but so that requires a fundamental shift in how we're doing because actually at the moment we're just we're kind of stuck on it i want it now and i need it now so that is that's a slightly that's a very different way of, of working yeah julia what's your second article this week my second pick this week is from the new yorker um it's called the race to redesign sugar and it's an article by nicola twilly and i think it continues that theme of um sort of thinking differently um doing things differently quite nicely as well um, so as the as the headline suggests, it's all about rethinking, re-engineering sugar. Um, a lot of the article focuses on a particular Israeli startup called Do Matok and a new type of sugar they've developed called Incredo. Incredo is a sugar crystal that has been re-engineered to be much, much sweeter than standard sugar. So you basically need to use less to achieve the same level of sweetness. They're quoting some examples there. Um, there's a certain sort of type of biscuit where they've managed to use 40% less sugar using Incredo. Um, consumer acceptance seems to look pretty promising too, at least according to what the article says. Um, they've done a number of taste panels with consumers and a pretty high proportion seemed to prefer, in fact, the Incredo sweetened version to the normal one. And they're now in the process um, of bringing this new sugar to market. They've got a partnership with Zutzuka, the European sugar giant, and they're also about to launch a partnership in the US. This, of course, all comes at a time when there's a lot of pressure on food manufacturers to reformulate, to take sugar out, to show that they are committed to creating healthier options um, for consumers and for children in particular. This is a considerable challenge because as the article explains brilliantly, it's a very long read, but it's really worth sticking with. It just has some fantastic uh, sort of facts and figures and geekery about sugar, uh, things I never knew about uh, rare sugars. Um, but part of the problem is that sugar is really quite tricky to replace. Uh, sweeteners have come a long way, but they still don't always deliver on taste and performance. Um, which is why Incredo and other sort of alternative sugars uh, that are being developed is such an interesting approach because rather than trying to replace sugar with a sweetener, it's sort of looking at the original ingredient and just finding a way of redesigning it so it performs better. The way they've done this is pretty incredible. Um, and in very broad brushstrokes, it involves blending sugar with tiny grains of silica. This creates a much more soluble sugar, which then rapidly saturates your taste buds, meaning you get a really potent hit of sweetness and the food manufacturer gets to use less sugar. Now, this particular startup that's made Incredo, they're not the only ways, um, they're not, not the only ones to, to look at redesigning sugar. Lots of big companies are involved as well. State and Lyle is featured in the article. Nestle used a similar sort of principle when it created a restructured sugar to make its Wowsums chocolate bar. If you remember Wowsums, they were launched here. That didn't quite work out. It didn't uh, particularly land with consumers, um, which sort of speaks to some of the challenges that a lot of these kind of alternative sugars or rare sugars uh, that the article talks about still faces. There are costs involved, but also 
consumer expectations and meeting consumer expectations around sweetness and the way sugar-sweetened food and drink should feel and perform is still really quite tricky. So you kind of come away from that article feeling like there's so much brilliant innovation, lots of exciting development happening in that space, but there is no immediate silver bullet in sight. Jed, what did you make of it there was a couple of there's a few things in there that uh, that tickled my fancy and there's there's there when i was reading through it and i kept thinking about there was a, a, a certain sketch that was on tv a, a good few years ago and actually i thought actually knowing knowing what customers are like they'll see it and they'll say right it's half the calories so i can eat twice as much so that so that's one of the things that I thought, but was the other thing that was interesting I thought about actually is the, the is that actually that would be incredible actually is the guy invented it so the guy invented it actually he was he invented it and he's he's 96 so in, and he's now he's retired so he's, he's retired at 101 so maybe maybe he's got the right thing maybe if he's been in, using Incredo for that that many years and maybe it's there's something something to it um one thing that was scary was the about the amount of sugar that actually the people are eating I mean, so the, the average american's eating about 19 teaspoons of sugar a day so for me sugar is one of the biggest challenges that the i think the industry has got and actually it is and it is part of our relationship and part of it as, as, as human beings so looking for sugar so we know it's an instant source of energy so our body craves it so actually it's the whole relationship with sugar that actually that need that needs needs to be addressed and how how we address that that certainly is it's not a silver bullet with actually with, with, a, with a different formulation so that's 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 something about again i think that does go back to using the right foods with kids at an early age so actually, so how do we how do we change our relationship with sugar? And I think that's for me that that is a that is the massive challenge. So rather than saying actually, well, we can get a new sugar, actually, well, how do we change our relationship with sugar? Um, so that that's that's but uh, yeah, I mean, it is there's a huge, huge amount of, of, of stuff in there actually. Though, and why is there? Because obviously, sugar's big business. So that's why people are looking to actually sort of, sort of reformulate it because it's a massive business. I really like your comment there about retraining your brain as an absolute sugar addict. Uh, right. But, and there's even a, a recent advert, isn't it, by three o'clock, go and get your chocolate bar. And I'm exactly that without even looking at the clock. I know it's three o'clock and I, and I, and I need to go and uh, raid, raid the biscuit tin. Um and it's because that that's instilled in you from an early age that chocolate's a treat and it's good and yeah. it powers you on. And you're right, actually, is it too late in life for adults to be uh, having this conversation now? And is it something that we need to be yeah, expanding the relationship kids have with food? And um, but yeah, it's it's too tempting. I know for me anyway, with all those sparkly wrappers at the checkout, I'll uh, I'll, I'll have a couple of those and uh, power me on. <laughs> I certainly think the idea of, you know, setting kids up uh, to not be overly kind of keen on, on sugar, um, I, I think is an important consideration and having this sort of good quality school meals, I think is a, is a big part of that. I guess on the other hand, um, I think innovation like that has a really important part to play as well, because it's easy to say we should have a different relationship with sugar and we should just you know instead of sort of trying to re-engineer things we should just not eat so much sugar which is of course true but 
also really difficult. Um, and so I think it's probably about sort of looking at some of these things as more of a kind of interim solution or a step towards a, a healthier alternative. Because I think if we're just waiting for people to cut back on their sugar consumption just like that, without offering them products and alternatives that make that a little bit easier, I think that's that's also um, asking um, asking quite a lot. But uh, yeah, I think the article ends on that note as well, doesn't it? It's sort of saying yeah, it's all very exciting. It's yeah. it's all very exciting and and really good to see. But ultimately, we should just be eating less. But you know, that's easier said than done. But I mean, I think you're absolutely right. Actually, if there anything that nudges people in the right direction, has got to be a good thing. Laura, what's your final piece for us? So my second pick this week is from The Verge and it's Amazon launches luxury stores to separate the hoi polloi from Hawkchore. Uh, and this is um, all about their new uh, venture called Luxury Stores. Uh, and it says, can shopping on your phone be a luxury experience? It's unlikely, but not stopping Amazon's latest attempt to get high-end brands on board. And um, this week it's launched these luxury stores. And it's a new way for brands to present their wares to discerning customers on Amazon's mobile app with high-end ready-to-wear brands such as Oscar de la Rente as their official partner. Uh, and the reason that this really interested me was, I guess, our whole relationship with tech now and the fact that we're driving more and more online, be it for food or, or, or clothes or whatever it may be. And some of that is for essentials, but some of it is luxury. And, and Amazon's push here to try and get some sort of luxury options onto its platform is really interesting. One of the stats it uses in the article, which uh, really uh, surprised me, and it probably shouldn't, is Amazon is actually the US's largest seller of clothes. Um, and just sort of let that sink in. I guess, yes, we probably all buy bits and pieces of clothing from Amazon, but to think they are the, the number one in the US um, is really interesting. And I guess seeing the opportunity that it's not all just about um, cheap and fast fashion where they're currently positioned and actually some of this luxury uh, products where we've been used to those experiences um, on the high street, which aren't necessarily as available or as enjoyable at the moment where Amazon are now exploring online. And they're going to have interactive features, uh, which they'll roll out, including um, consumers to be able to explore styles in 360 degree detail and better visualise fit, making shopping for luxury uh, easier and more engaging. And I think that's the key, isn't it? And I guess we touched on it a little bit when we talked about John Lewis as well. If you're going to charge more for something, uh, it's got to have that extra stuff, be that service, expertise, what, and what is all of that and that experience if you're not there physically. And that's why I was really interested in to, to, to see what um, Amazon are going to do with this and maybe some tech that others will copy. There wasn't anything in the article that I'm not seeing that other clothes retailers are doing you know the, the likes of the Arcadia group and Zara are all trialing lots of 360 technology and lots of different um, options to put your measurements in for example and then it'll spit out what's a, the best sizing for you I guess the other thing that really interested me about the article was that this um, exclusivity around the luxury stores and again it, it flips back to what you do with consumer data what Amazon are doing is they're courting Amazon's uh, 100 million prime customers and especially targeting those that feel are relevant to these luxury uh, luxury stores offer. So um, I think for me, it's 
what's the tech going to do? And I'm guessing because they're, they're amazing at their segmentation, I'm sure, about how effectively they'll target and will they deliver something where people want to part with thousands of pounds for, for clothing. Jed, what are your thoughts on that? Is it something that you see could work for them after a couple of previous attempts? For me, I think I looked at this and I thought, particularly in the, in the week of the Emmys, and I looked at that and I thought, actually, is this something we're going to see in the future, actually, when someone gets asked where their dress is from and the dress actually is from Amazon? So <laughs> I'm not sure we're quite there there yet. And actually, the, from one of the things actually says, actually, it's, here, it's an exclusive club. However, it says, if you want to, then you can apply. So all of a sudden, the exclusivity part of it disappears. So uh, you're either exclusive or you're not. So actually, though, and is, is this something that, um, that the whole, the super luxury, obviously, it's like Oscar de la Renze, that, that you're talking super luxury. It's not just, I mean, this is real proper uh, sort of high-end stuff. So is that where that kind of shopper would look for these kind of products? Is Amazon the, the place that they're going to go? I, I, I've got a question, actually, is that, is that, is that where, where that would be, where they would go. And you're right. With other retailers, well, why would the the retailers actually would not just have their own platforms? Because all of a sudden, then you've got you've got somebody else that's actually that's taking another cut of what you want. And actually, is that the right customers that that, that you want? The Amazon the Amazon Prime customer. So is it Amazon Prime Plus if you want something that's super luxury? Um, so I, it's it's a bold is it a bold move i i think it probably is but i i don't see this as something that actually that will be something that uh, have a huge part of the be that's part of their success long term you're not putting your putting in your application this afternoon no that's not it's not it's not gonna i won't be applying to part, part of this exclusive non-exclusive club <laughs> i mean it's certainly in terms of timing i think now if you're going to try something like this i think now is a good time to do that because Great. you are not competing with a really nice in-store experience you know you've got shoppers already trained to look uh to look on e-commerce sites and i think even though i think some retailers are doing some really nice stuff um to, to try and sort of bring their products to life and, and have a bit more storytelling. But I think a lot of it is still quite functional when you look at sites in terms of how products are presented. So I'm not sure. I, I think as long as the, the service is good, you know, I could see Amazon obviously being really good on the fulfillment side, being really good with returns, like all of that. I think especially if you're buying stuff and you want to try on lots of different options, um, you know, I, I could see that they, they would potentially have a, a, a lot to offer there. I know they've tried um, moving a little bit more into the sort of premium beauty space as well. And they do certainly have a challenge in kind of, um, making consumers think about these high-end luxury products and sort of indulgence when they think of Amazon. But um, I think there's that there's an opportunity there for them. I'm certainly interested in what they're trying to do with this whole sort of um, shop within a shop concept as well, to try and really have a slightly different look and feel um, to, to that particular section of the website. I feel like, particularly when you look at sort of the, the grocery retailers' um, e-commerce sites, we st we're still such a long way from having anything that kind of tells the story of that food. I mean, maybe you get a little bit of a banner and slightly more copy, but most of it is just so super basic. So 
sometimes you wonder that, you know, if Amazon is doing something particularly interesting around uh, sort of branding and, and giving retailers or, or brands a slightly more attractive space, whether that's going to filter down to uh, some other e-commerce practices down the line as well. It would be amazing, wouldn't it, if that could go into food and, and online grocery sales and then show how to cooking videos and it all be integrated, traceability options for certain products, and it could really bring it alive if uh, if this works well for Amazon. Jed, it's been great to have you on. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Thanks. That's all we have for you this week. Thank you so much for listening. You can find links to the articles we discussed in the show notes at thepicklist.co.uk. If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe, give it a rating and leave a review. It makes a massive difference to our podcast and helps us reach more people in the food industry who'd enjoy listening to The Picklist. Thanks again for listening. See you next time.